What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, the weekly NBA show over at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam. Please follow us on Instagram at Slab Stocks. Subscribe on YouTube and be sure to navigate to slabstocks.com and subscribe to our newsletter, which you can do by putting your email address in the box at the top of the page. So the big news last week, as we talked about, was that the NBA was coming back. Uh, in about eight to seven weeks, or seven to eight weeks, the big news this week is that the NBA's coming back, maybe? And I guess we don't really know anymore. Uh, I really would like it to come back personally, because that would give me something to cover. Uh, but I also can't say that I don't understand the players' positions. You know, if you're the Wizards, or the Magic, or the Pistons, or the Sun, or if you're like the 12th man on a team that has no chance at advancing very far in the playoffs... Why would you want to give up two months of your of your summer or your your off season to be sequestered in Kissimmee, Florida, in the 96 degree heat with no outside entertainment? Uh, it just doesn't make a whole ton of sense on the individual level for a majority of these players. Um, but I still you know, really would love to see them play. Um, but I guess we're kind of in the wait and see mode at the moment, so that stinks. But we'll just cross our fingers, I guess. Uh, what doesn't stink is the 2017 NBA Draft. We covered the first 12 picks last week for the most part. Today we are going to cover the rest of this draft. And of course, I can't cover it all, nor would that be worth your time. But I will hit the rest of the highlights, and there are a lot of highlights. So without further ado, the 13th pick in the 2017 NBA Draft, ending up on the Utah Jazz, Donovan Mitchell. Uh, easily been one of the best two or three players in this draft, and it was an excellent pick by the Jazz. And the thing that caused Mitchell's slip is that he just wasn't all that impressive at Louisville. You know, Patino has this way of, or had this way of making Louisville players look much better than they were, and they'd be drafted and they'd be kind of a disappointment. It was the opposite with Mitchell. Uh, in two seasons at Louisville, he was a career 33% three-point shooter. His last season, he scored 16 points, five rebounds, 2.7 assists, and two steals, which is a fine-looking stat line, just not really the type of numbers that move the needle all that much in an NBA draft, especially when you're coming from a Louisville program that generally inflates stats maybe a bit beyond a player's skill. Credit to the Jazz for seeing through all that and figuring this all out because Mitchell's been pretty, pretty good. Uh, he had that insane rookie season, just came out of nowhere seemingly, averaged 20 points, and, and while he hasn't had huge statistical improvements, he has gotten better, at least in the base stats. This past season, his third, he put up 24 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, and a steal, while shooting 45% from the field and 36% from deep on 7 attempts per game. All pretty good. He leads his entire draft in career VORP, value for a replacement player. He's fifth in win shares and one of three players in the draft to make an all-star team. All three of them, including Bam Adebayo, Jason Tatum, uh, they all made their first appearance this season in the All-Star Game. So, 13th overall pick. Yeah, that's pretty good. He's a very bad defensive player. Bottom 11 defensive player in the in basketball by defensive PIPM. And the Nuggets are a, and the Jazz are a full 8 points better defensively when he's on the bench. But it doesn't matter a whole ton since he is playing for the Jazz with the 11th best defense in basketball, even with him playing a team-leading 2,165 minutes this past season. So much of this is all contextual, and so the bad defense isn't a total killer. That being said, the deeper you go with Mitchell, it actually does get pretty ugly, at least this past season. You know, because of the huge negative defensive PIPM overall, he's a net negative by that statistic. 
Uh, by wins added, he contributed less this past season than Gobert, Bogdanovich, Inglis, and Royce O'Neal. His luck adjusted on-off is a minus 3.4, which is pretty bad considering the players he shares the court with the most are all huge positives. Uh, by net rating, the other four starters come out as plus 7.9, 7.3, 6.4, and 5.8. And Mitchell's chilling down there at negative 3.4. Just really not that pretty. Hasn't always been the case. Last season, it was a big, big net positive and even a bigger net positive his rookie year. But what appears to be happening is, as his defense has been getting quite a bit worse, his offense has only improved in small increments each season. And so a lot of these catch-all type of metrics were actually really down on him this past year. Of course, some of that might have to do with sharing the court with Mike Conley this past season, and we all know that that didn't work out terribly well. For Mitchell, of all the regulars in the Jazz lineups, by, excuse me, by net rating, his worst two-man pairing is together with Conley. By the way, Mike Conley is a free agent after next season. This would all change if we saw an offensive leap from the 23-year-old. Up to this point, again, marginal offensive improvement, but just not the type of improvements we usually see by the third year in some of the top players in the league. His big problem on offense is he just hasn't been super efficient. His rookie year, his true shooting percentage was 54%, which is pretty good for a rookie. But by his third season, that's only up to 56%, which makes him the 54th best shooting player among guards that played over 40 games. Uh, for context, Devin Booker, who I think is often compared to Mitchell in a lot of our minds, he's sitting ninth on that list with a true shooting of 62%. By effective field goal percentage, he's sitting as the 75th most efficient shooter among guards that played over 40 games. Uh, you know, other prominent names around him on these lists, Sexton, Shade, Aaron Fox, but Mitchell by far has the highest usage percentage of all those guys, so the inefficiency is much more painful with him. As far as an investment goes, I do think his reputation affords us quite a bit of leeway to figure out if he's ever going to make that next leap. You know, coming out the way he did in his rookie season, we still think of him in that context as one of the really exciting young players in the game, and generally that is what he is. But if there's no meaningful offensive improvement, eventually the reputation could shift on him. Even with the efficiency issues, he's still a prolific scorer, he can score from all three levels, he has no problem finding his own shot, but he's going to need to start doing that a little bit more effectively. So let's cross our fingers and hope that we can finally see that improvement in this coming season, his fourth. Now generally, since May, his PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie Card auctions have been ending within spitting distance of $400, although there was that one that ended the other day at $780, although I'm kind of inclined to ignore that one. So considering him as a $400 card, generally I think he's a buy, although maybe not as strong of a buy as I kind of thought when I was heading into this deep dive. Um, perhaps there could be an expiration on him, you know, expiration date on him reputationally if we don't see that big improvement. You know, but all in all, he's on a good Jazz team. He's the leader of that team. It's an excellent fan base out there in Utah. And I think a lot of those things will continue to carry his value for a while. Next up for consideration, the very next pick, another absolute steal to the Miami Heat, Bam Adebayo. This is going to be a pretty easy and short valuation here. There's just not much to nitpick. 16 points, 10.5 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.2 steals, 1.3 blocks per game. I think there's room for improvement. For instance, he accumulated those stats on only 20% usage over the whole season. Over his last 11 games of the year, that was up to 25% usage, and I'm thinking that we'll be seeing something more in that range moving forward, which would only help improve his overall numbers. 
He was a big net positive by PIPM, great defensively, a plus 4.1 net rating by on-off, you know, so really just a lot of good stuff there. One of the things that I love about BAM is the facilitation. You know, each year his assist percentage has increased, going from 11 to 14, all the way up to 24% this past year. As a young big man looking to create for his teammates as much as he is, that's an incredibly encouraging sign. And he still has a long way to go from being like a Nikola Jokic level. You know, his career assist percentage is 30%, but Bam's on the right track. I already mentioned it, but he made his first All-Star game this year, and I think he's still just scratching the surface. You know, this was his first season as a full-time starter, and, and there was just so much to like. A perennial All-Star seems likely. He's on a good team. He will be with Jimmy Butler for several seasons. You know, so production, situation, market, all of these things are pluses in Bam's favor. He is a big man, and obviously we all know big men just don't sell quite as well as wings or guards in the card market. You know, it is true that the top centers in the league don't sell for as much comparatively, but the best bigs still sell for quite a bit more than Bam is currently going. His PSA 10 Prism Silver's rookie cards have been auctioning uh, not not a whole often, you know, not very often, um, but they've gone between $250 and $275 on auction in the past month. Um, one was an auction with six days left as of this recording, still sitting at $285, so who knows where that'll end at. I do sort of wonder if, you know, with the craziness of the overall market, you know, when everyone's trying to zig while everyone else zags, you know, everyone's always looking for the next underappreciated asset, and big men seem like a pretty clear candidates for a general boost. So if we're in my money, and Bam is going around $300, he's one of the best players on one of the best teams in the East, likely a perennial all-star, still young, a very good all-around player, I clearly think he's a buy. Uh, obviously spent some less time on Bam Adebayo than Donovan Mitchell, but I just think that's the case when a player's so easy to evaluate. Just let me know if there's something I'm missing with Bam, uh, I would like to know. All right, jumping down to pick number 19, to the Atlanta Hawks, John Collins. And there's a lot to like about Collins. Obviously, there's going to be some questions surrounding him due to the 25-game suspension this past season. But all he did after that was put up one of the most efficient scoring seasons by a big man in the league, and he did it in his age 22 season. With a true shooting percentage of 66%, a three-point percentage of 40% on 3.6 attempts per game, Collins poured in 21.6 points, 10 rebounds, 1.6 blocks per game, obviously all really good. Uh, shot from the charity stripe at an 80% clip, which is, again, really, really good. He has all the makings of a really, really good offensive player for years to come. The thing that bothers me with Collins, and really with a lot of these young Hawks players, is that the team is just so bad. You know, I know I brought it up with Trey Young several times, and I don't want to belabor the point today, you know, but when you have supposedly one of the best young guards in the league, and you have John Collins with his incredible offensive output, you should be able to do better than 20 and 47. I mean, that's just absolutely terrible. You know, we afford them a long leash since we all really like these young guys, but I do just keep wondering how long that's going to be the case if they never start winning. Obviously, one of the big issues is that both Collins and Young are pretty bad defensively, and it's you know, kind of troubling when you consider the immediate success of some of the other young combos in the league, like in Memphis or in New Orleans, and you know they're both in the West. The Hawks just need to get better for both of these guys. The Hawks did bring in Clint Capella at the trade deadline to try and help shore up some of their weaknesses, but we also haven't seen how that looks to have Capella and Collins playing alongside one another yet. 
Uh, not the world's cleanest fit, in my opinion. Collins is obviously a, a good three-point shooter, but he's not a guy that you just want hovering out at the three-point line. Uh, both of those guys are at their absolute best when they are you know, the pick-and-roll men, or the roll men in a pick-and-roll. We know Capella has no other option on offense other than that, so you know the pairing will likely affect Collins on offense a fair amount. The Hawks aren't just going to relegate Collins to standing in the corner. Obviously, he is very malleable on offense, so I'm inclined to think that something something will work out. Um, but we've seen you know, some of the troubles with like the 76ers, how their fit issues oftentimes just leave Embiid as a glorified Ryan Anderson, and that's clearly not ideal. So the Capella-Collins pairing is certainly something to keep tabs on, and I really hope they figure it out. I do like a lot of these young guys. I just I need them to start winning. So while I still have lots of question marks in my mind about the Hawks in general, I still like Collins as a buy. His PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards are auctioning off just under $200 recently, and I think the ceiling is too high on him to not for that not to be a buy. I do still have question marks that I think you should keep in mind, but it's worth the chance to me. He's entering his fourth year. He wants to get that big contract extension. He's going to come out with a lot to prove this year. So I think we're looking at a big season coming up for him, and hopefully the Hawks put some wins together. That would just really help everything. Okay, I hate giving all these buys on all these guys. What happened to the good old days of the 2019 draft when I was down on so many of them? Whatever. Next player is going to change that, uh, breaking the trend for me, even though I still really like him as a player. Uh, next player to consider is pick number 22 of the Brooklyn Nets, Jarrett Allen. A pretty typical athletic rim-running, shot-blocking center. You know, only played the one year at Texas, wasn't super involved in the offense, which made him kind of hard to evaluate and likely why he fell to pick 22. Skills-wise, probably should have gone higher in the draft and definitely should be getting more minutes for the Brooklyn Nets. In his sophomore campaign, he averaged 26 minutes per night with 11 points, 8 rebounds, and a block and a half. This past season, he averaged a half minute less per night and 11 points, a block and a half, and he upped his rebound totals to just under 10 per night. So what happened? Why did he lose minutes? I'm assuming you all know this. Uh, we've all spent a lot of time thinking about Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving teaming up on the Nets, but they actually formed as a big three, quote-unquote, with DeAndre Jordan as the third star. Uh, supposedly, the understanding heading in for them signing was that DeAndre Jordan would be getting starter minutes for the Nets. Well, Jordan signed a four-year deal. He didn't play more minutes than Jarrett Allen, but he did get 22 minutes a night, which is probably too many. Uh, there are some things he does better. He's a more efficient scorer. He is better defensively. Uh, Jarrett Allen is no slouch defensively either, but he can be pushed around a bit, whereas Jordan is more of a load down there. Uh, Allen has a higher block percentage and holds opponents to a lower field goal percentage in the restricted area. But Jordan's presence also, you know, in the paint generally results in fewer attempts at the rim. Um, so, you know, in every, in some ways, Jordan's better, but in every other way, Jarrett Allen's clearly better. He's second on the team in most of the advanced stats. He was a net positive over the season, whereas Jordan was a net negative. Ideally, Jordan would be like a 17-minute-a-night type of guy, and Allen would push up to the 29- to 30-minute-a-night territory. So here's hoping that that happens soon, although I'm not sure it is going to happen. Uh, there are a lot of rumblings that Kenny Atkinson was fired as the coach of the Nets because he was giving more and more minutes to Jarrett Allen over DeAndre Jordan. Uh, the team is simply, it's, it's going to be run by the dictates of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. 
And I don't know if you heard that quote from Kyrie back in January, but it's pretty telling. He said, collectively, I feel like we have great pieces, but it's pretty glaring. We need one more piece or two more pieces that will complement myself, KD, DJ, Garrett Temple, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis Levert, and we'll see how that evolves. Uh, glaringly absent from that list is the young center, which leads me to believe he's probably going to be jerked around even more next year. Oh, and by the way, after Kenny Atkinson was fired, Alex, Allen's minutes did fall off significantly, and I expect that to continue next season. His PSA 10 Prism Silver rookie cards don't auction off very often, which isn't a surprise really. Uh, the last few auctions were in April. They went around $40. Some Buy It Nows recently went for $60. If you want to wait and see what happens, you know, maybe he gets traded into a better situation, then hold. If you want your investments to be actively working for you, I'd probably sell. Uh, in addition to everything we've discussed, you know, he has a very traditional center, and I don't think he's ever going to make an all-star team. So the upside on him is pretty clearly limited as far as cards go. Next up, OG Ananobi. I think he's a really good NBA player, very good defensively. He does some nice things on offense, not a creator, low assist totals, only 60, and 64% and of his shots came uh, with the ball being in his hands for less than two seconds, um, so he's not exactly creating for himself either. But in his low usage offensive role, he shot 51% from the field, 38% from three on 3.4 attempts per game, so the efficiency is there. All told, the numbers are 11 points, 4 rebounds, 1.6 assists, 1.4 steals per game. Not eye-popping, but solid enough. By PIPM, he was a nice positive, and the Raptors' fourth most valuable player, and he was the sixth best by net rating, which was a solid plus 5.7 points. I don't think he's ever going to be an all-star. He's never going to be the focal point of a team offensively, but a really, really nice NBA player for a long time. For the card investor, him playing for the Toronto Raptors is a very good thing passionate fan base, awesome GM, awesome coach, really good, well-constructed team, great scouting. You know, everything's there for the Raptors to be good for quite some time. And for that reason, I consider OG a buy. Uh, it's a rising tide lifts all boats types of thing. Recent auctions on ComC have gone in the $75 range. More recently, a couple Probstein auctions ended at $90 and $107. Uh, do with that what you want. I think there's still upside for him, largely tied to the team. And he's also one of those players that NBA nerds really like. So even if he doesn't have the type of gameplay that results in huge numbers or highlight reels, I think there's an underlying level of support that should be of help to us over the next couple years as investors. So I have him down as a buy. Probably not huge returns ever, but I still think he is a buy. A couple guys left. Next up, Clear sell, in my opinion. This shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Pick number 27 to the Los Angeles Lakers, Kyle Kuzma. You probably remember after he was drafted, he had that huge summer league, and it really led to just big-time popularity for the young forward out of Utah. Uh, his rookie season was fine. A nice 16 points, 6 rebounds, 2 assists, and 37% three-point shooting on 6 attempts per game. That's awesome. Uh, the next year was a bit of a mixed bag. 19 points, 5.5 rebounds, 2.5 assists, but three-point shooting really fell off to 30%. Well, then the Lakers picked up Anthony Davis in addition to LeBron, and Kuzma was one of the young guys that the Lakers really wanted to hang on to, but then this past season was a struggle for him. It was his worst season as a pro. 12.5 points, 4.5 rebounds, 1.3 assists, and just under 30% three-point shooting on 4.4 attempts per game. That was in only 25 minutes per night, so per 36. They are close to his rookie season numbers, but there were reasons for him only receiving 25 minutes per night. 
on a team with LeBron and AD. It is paramount that you are able to space the floor and shoot threes, and Kuzma just hasn't had very good results from deep in the past two seasons. On catch-and-shoot threes, he was up to 34%, but that's still just not very good, especially on catch-and-shoot threes. By PIPM, he was in negative on both ends of the court, a negative 3.1 in on-off differential. There just you know, isn't enough stuff that he can do to really warrant a ton of minutes on this Lakers team, and inefficient scoring, low assist percentage. These aren't the types of things that endear you to LeBron James as a teammate. I think if he's ever given the reins of a team, he can score in bunches, 20-point scorer easily. I just don't think any team that he leads will ever be that good, and he's not going to get that opportunity with this Lakers team. Reputationally, he still is very popular, plays in a super premium market, and Lakers fans really seem to love the guy still. I'm okay with all that. Gets a few more bucks in your pocket if you decide to sell. His prices are kind of all over the place. 227, 172, 167, 125, 142, 90, 216. Uh, so I don't even know what his current price is, but that's where his PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie Card auctions have been ending the last couple of months. Uh, whatever the price is, I think he's clearly a sell. And if you get toward the upper ends of those numbers, then bully for you. Uh, I did mention in the podcast a while back, I do think if the NBA ever returns to actually play a game ever again, there's probably still some earning potential for Kuzma on you know this deep, you know, on this good Lakers team if they have a deep playoff run, assuming they will. So perhaps he's a hold through that point, but I wouldn't recommend buying him. Now, there are other guys left in this draft that are fine NBA players. Josh Hart, Dwayne Bacon, Thomas Bryant, Damian Dawson, Dylan Brooks, to name a few. Monty Morris as well. Uh, but the last guy I do want to talk about is Derek White, pick number 29 to the San Antonio Spurs. He is a guy that had a big leap from his rookie season in which he didn't really see much playing time at all to his sophomore campaign where he was just thrust right into the starting lineup due to the injury to DeJounte Murray. I think I pronounced DeJounte? I don't know how to say that very well. He started 55 games that year, saw 26 minutes per contest, played in 67 games overall, and he averaged 10 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, a steal, uh, shot well enough from the field, but only 34% deep from deep on 2 attempts per game. This year, Murray came back into the lineup, and so White only started 13 games, averaged only 24 minutes per night, came away with 10 points, 3 rebounds, 3 assists, and nearly a block per game. Three-point shooting was up a little bit, 36% on 2.6 attempts per game. It was a frustrating season for Derek White, frustrating fan season for White fans. Uh, really thought he'd get the chance to build off of that sophomore campaign, but you know, a lot of his opportunities were sort of yanked away from him. I am not one to critique Greg Popovich. He's clearly one of the best coaches in the league, and I have no idea what I'm talking about. But, you know, he really just didn't want to try Murray and White out together at all. Over the course of 38 games in which they shared the court, they only saw 102 minutes together. That's just over two and a half minutes per game shared time. Uh, they would definitely have some weaknesses at shooting three, but I think that's a pairing that needs to be used more, at least, you know, so we can see what's there. So, Greg, if you're watching, you know, try it. Uh, the Spurs were only 27 and 36, so it's not like they had much to gain by continuing to trot out Bryn Forbes every night. I mean, he's fine, but the upside is limited. Obviously, I know Greg Popovich isn't watching this. Derek White's on-off differential was a plus two. Third best PIPM on the team with positive contributions on both sides of the ball. Net rating was a zero, but I think that has more to do with who he was sharing the court with. For instance, last year as a starter, his net rating was 4.8. So I like Derek White as a player. Outside of the just okay shooting, I like a lot of what he brings, and I just really wish he got some more opportunity. You know, maybe that will come next year. He's never going to be an all-star, but I think, I think 
that he and Murray could form a pretty fun backcourt for the San Antonio Spurs, although maybe that would be a disaster. What do I know? His PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards have not seen a ton of auctions, uh, but going back to April, we've seen the final bids increase from $28 on April 3rd to $56 on June 10th, so that's a, that just doubled it. Uh, I don't think there's a ton of upside, but I think at that price, I would consider a buy as a cheaper option. You know, all it would really take is some off-season talk about the Spurs being excited about Murray and White pairing up, and, and you know, that could really get things moving in the short term. So a modest buy could work out. Wouldn't expect to send your kids to college on it or anything. All right, that's all the time I have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.